In Ukraine, sirens and bomb explosions, just a part of everyday life for a couple living in Kyiv in the midst of war. The bomb exploded two blocks from our house and all our windows got shattered. And I saw smoke, I was doing my exercises on the balcony. Today is Thursday, February 23rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll revisit a Ukrainian-American couple who've chosen not to return to Massachusetts despite the conflict. Meanwhile, one year after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, life in Russia has changed profoundly. It's a place of lost freedoms, historical grievances, pride and despair. Nigeria is in the middle of a cash crisis as the government attempts to replace old currency, leaving many furious. Are we going to eat it? He says his old narrow is pointless. Because if he deposits it in a bank, he can't access it again. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Alec Murdoch concedes he lied to investigators but maintains he did not commit murder. Today, the once prominent South Carolina former attorney took the stand in his defense against charges that he murdered his wife and one of his sons. As South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports, Murdoch testified in part to attempt to explain his shattered alibi in which he previously told investigators he was not at the crime scene the night of the killings. Video taken from the cell phone of Murdoch's murdered son shows a video in which Murdoch's voice can be heard along with the victims moments before they were killed. The defense immediately addressed the issue. Mr. Murdoch, is that you? On the kennel video at 8.44 p.m. on June 7th, the night Maddie, Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is. Murdoch admits he lied to investigators about being at the crime scene before discovering the bodies of his loved ones. The 54-year-old says he was on opioids and paranoid about investigators' questions. Still, Murdoch denies having anything to do with the murders. If convicted, the former attorney faces anywhere from 30 years to life behind bars without parole. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro. Disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein is getting more prison time. Jurors in Los Angeles convicted Weinstein today of raping and sexually assaulting an actress and model. The 70-year-old is ordered to serve 16 years in prison after he completes the remainder of his 30-year sentence in New York for similar crimes. The founder of the embattled digital startup Aussie Media has been arrested and charged with fraud. Carlos Watson was scheduled to be arraigned in federal court in New York this afternoon. After the company was exposed for possible fraud, it lost millions of dollars before it was shut down. Watson had previously served on NPR's board until he resigned in 2021 following the public meltdown of his company. At the time, Watson criticized the New York Times expose on Ozzy. He said the story was, quote, profoundly inaccurate. On the eve of the first anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country will boost its nuclear forces. The announcement follows an earlier decision to suspend Russia's membership in a key nuclear arms agreement with the U.S. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. In a speech to mark the Defender of the Fatherland holiday, Putin said Russia would replenish its conventional arms and strengthen its nuclear triad of intercontinental missiles capable of launching from air, land and sea. The move follows Putin's decision to suspend Russian participation in the New START treaty, the lone remaining nuclear arms agreement with the U.S. Moscow insists the future of the nuclear treaty now rests with Washington and its allies, reconsidering their military support for Kiev as the war in Ukraine reaches is the one-year mark. Putin has reframed Russia's invasion as an existential threat from Western powers, intent on seizing Russia's historical lands. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A winter storm is causing pretty slick conditions that may last through tomorrow morning. Snow, rain, and sleet is falling around parts of the Boston area now. A second batch of wintry weather is forecast for tonight after 8 o'clock. With slushy, wet, and cold conditions out there, the speed limit on the Mass Turnpike is down to 40 miles an hour now between Boston and Palmer. More than 500 flights at Logan Airport have been canceled or delayed today. Some MBTA buses are using snow routes that bypass certain stops due to road conditions. There's been a setback for Cambridge-based tech company Biogen. The federal government announced this week that Medicare will not cover patients' costs for a drug Biogen developed with a Japanese company. Studies have shown the drug Lakembi can slow the advancement of Alzheimer's disease, but Medicare officials say further studies are needed. They also say that although the Food and Drug Administration has given the drug an accelerated approval, the treatment has not yet received a full traditional approval that could trigger Medicare coverage. Tomorrow marks one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A former Swamscott couple, Helen Chervis and Leanne Ryakovsky, have experienced the change in that country's capital. They've been in Kyiv for the past 10 years. Chervis says the war has brought frequent power blackouts during the day. Often electricity does come back at night. People are forced to set their alarm clocks at 2 in the morning to do laundry, to do some heating, uh, to do some cooking, because uh, most of uh, the households depend on electric appliances. Air sirens are another constant in the capital. Uh, Rykovsky compares the sound to music that he doesn't like but can't turn off. Yet the husband and wife say they're not afraid and are not planning to leave the city anytime soon. More now on the wintry forecast. Some light snow, rain, and sleet in the Boston area. Another round will come through the area later tonight. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has details. Still a bit sloppy out there and another round of light sleet and freezing rain this evening for many only lasts a few hours, but that will mean slippery spots through tonight and some tough travel. Anything untreated will be icy except for the south coast in Cape Cod where we stay above freezing. Tomorrow, the sun returns after highs in the 30s early. We're going to drop rapidly into the teens and 20s tomorrow evening. Wind chill values, single digits below zero Saturday morning, and our highs don't get out of the 20s Saturday afternoon. A bit of a rebound by Sunday in the mid to upper 30s, some snow showers around this weekend, generally light, and another storm potential Monday night into Tuesday. Pretty gray out there right now, 29 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Environmental Protection Agency is taking a hard line with the operator of the train that derailed in Ohio. EPA Administrator Michael Regan held a news conference this week where he said Norfolk Southern will pay for the cleanup. And if they don't, he said, EPA will do the job and charge the company triple the cost. Administrator Regan is here to talk about the road ahead for this community. Welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you for having me. Before we get to the company's accountability, I want to talk about the safety of people living in the area. So far, EPA has said tests have not shown any contamination of air or drinking water linked to the derailment, but more tests are being done. How much more information do you need before you can conclusively say that this spill does not pose a risk to locals? EPA will continue to test the ambient air quality. Uh, For anyone who has concerns about their indoor air quality, we're asking them to reach out to us and we will come into their homes and test that air quality. 
The state of Ohio is leading uh, continuous water quality testing. We are providing support in that testing as well. We recognize that people are concerned about their air and water quality, not just now, but for the medium and long term. What does that mean? Months? Years? How long do you intend to keep testing? For as long as it takes. Uh, We are going to be with this community throughout this process. They will not have to manage this crisis alone. Yesterday on the program, we heard from a local hunter in Pennsylvania named Adam Cornwell, who said he has heard about animals dying. Those are reports that we've not independently verified, but he told us this. I don't want to eat the deer if they're breathing in that contaminants, you know, so I pretty much can't hunt here no more. Do you think that's an appropriate concern? You know, we have heard that concern as well. And the state of Ohio uh, is leading that investigation. What the state of Ohio has told us is that they did see an initial impact to some wildlife during the beginning of the disaster, uh, but have not seen any lingering effects from it. And so, yes, there were fish floating in the rivers, but the state of Ohio is investigating that. And I encourage local hunters and everyone who is curious about it or concerned about it to reach out to the state of Ohio to get the latest information. This might sound nitpicky, but there's an important distinction between we've not seen evidence that this is harmful and we have demonstrated that this is safe. I know you said the first. Are you able to say the second? You know, I believe that we are based on the science. Now, I recognize that no matter how much data we collect or provide, it may not be enough to restore that sense of safety and security. But what I can say is with the air quality uh, analysis we've done, and, and we're u- using some of the most you know, high experience technology that we have for both air and water, the data is coming back demonstrating that there are no levels of concern for adverse health impacts. As you said, people don't necessarily believe the federal government. Americans have lost their faith in institutions beyond telling people that you've tested the air and water and found a reason for concern. How can you get folks to have confidence? in their infrastructure? How can you get folks to believe you? Number one, we have to continue to show up and we have to be in these communities and we have to be very transparent, bringing the data to them, but also making all of the data easily accessible. I believe that if we make all of our data transparent, uh, those who are skeptical can use third parties to verify it. If we are in the community explaining the information, providing them the resources, we believe over time we will be able to rebuild that trust. But we know that that's a long journey. Let's talk about your promise that Norfolk Southern will pay for this. How specifically can EPA enforce that? How do you keep that promise? When bad actors pollute, as Norfolk Southern has done, uh, when they inflict trauma, we have the authorities under our CERCLA law to take the actions that we're taking. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hold the company accountable to provide to us a work plan that lays out every single step for how they will clean up the soil, how they will clean up the water, and how they will continue to pay for testing. If they do not do this, we can step in, provide those services to the community with no break in action, and we can find this company up to $70,000 a day. By the way, After we complete those tasks, we can go back and go after this company for three times the amount that the government has to come out of pocket for. You know, you referred to Norfolk Southern as a bad actor. You said this is the mess that they created. 
Others have described it as an accident. Is it fair to call them a bad actor? Well, you know, what I would say is I won't get out in front of the investigation being led by the Department of Transportation and Pete Buttigieg. Uh, But what I will say is they've had a number of opportunities to demonstrate that they are going to uh, be with this community. But at the first opportunity during a town hall meeting, uh, they decided to not show up. Uh, Listen, they They said that was because of safety risks and threats to the well-being of the people who were scheduled to be there. I don't know whether those risks were real, but if people felt that their lives were threatened, you could imagine why they might not show up. Well, you know, there were risks associated and threats associated uh, with our organization as well and others that were in attendance. This was an important event to be at. There was adequate security in the location, uh, and Norfolk Southern should should have been there and could have been there, just like state, local, federal, community leaders, those who have been impacted. They made the wrong decision. They have to show up, and they have to make amends with this community. They caused this mess. They have to clean it up, and they have to prove to us and to the community uh, that they're genuine in all of the declarations that they've made. Uh, Not showing up to public meetings isn't a great way to start. You say that EPA and Norfolk Southern will be there until the job is done. That question of when the job is done is a subjective one. So what does the finish line look like to you? You know, the finish line looks like returning this community back uh, to the state it was before the trauma was inflicted. Uh, The finish line is something that not only will EPA and state and local governments determine, uh, but the communities will be involved in that. Uh, We will clean up this mess uh, together, uh, holding Norfolk Southern accountable uh, to do the work and to pay for it. But this is a longer term process, but rest assured, uh, we will be there until the job is finished. Michael Regan is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, Ari. In Washington today, there is a big debate about when people in federal prison should be able to ask for early release. And the U.S. Sentencing Commission is considering what counts as an extraordinary circumstance under the Compassionate Release Program. Advocates want those who have been physically or sexually abused by prison workers to have a way out. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves leads the Sentencing Commission. He opened the meeting with this message. It does not matter if you sit in the halls of Congress or at the desk of a prison library. When you speak to the commission, you will be heard. Four years ago, in a law called the First Step Act, Congress gave prisoners the option of asking a judge for early release if they demonstrated extraordinary or compelling reasons, like terminal illness or old age. During the height of the COVID pandemic, 2,000 prisoners a month petitioned the courts for compassionate release, but only a small fraction succeeded. Now the question for the Sentencing Commission is, what counts as extraordinary? Robert Parker is an official at the U.S. Justice Department. As the pandemic showed, we often can't predict what extraordinary and compelling circumstances may arise in the future. 
Parker says the DOJ supports early release in cases of severe illness or when prisoners have no one else to care for their children. But he adopted a more nuanced view about claims of abuse by prison workers. We agree that compassionate release should be available for certain victims of physical or sexual abuse in prison, as long as that misconduct has been independently established so that compassionate release hearings do not become mini-trials before an investigation is complete. Yes, we would disagree with that. Kelly Barrett's an assistant federal public defender in Connecticut. One of the driving forces behind the First Step Act was to take um, the administrative delay out of the hands of the Bureau of Prisons, which was extremely slow to act for many, many years. Waiting for an abusive prison officer to be fired or prosecuted could take years, she says. Other defense attorneys and advocates are pressing the sentencing panel to take an even wider view. Defense lawyer Natasha Sen. While the perpetrators of these assaults may be different, the impact on an institutionalized individual can be no less traumatizing or deserving of relief. Kathy Lester is the police chief in Sacramento, California. She says many of the proposals under review are too broad. Instead of granting compassionate release to someone who's been adjudicated guilty based on the evidence by a jury of their peers because they were a victim of sexual or physical abuse, the focus should be on preventing these actions from occurring in the first place. Lester says there's a law already on the books to eliminate prison rape, and if it's enforced, there's no need to expand the reasons for compassionate release. Kelly Sirtis says her brother was carjacked, kidnapped, and shot by a group of men more than 20 years ago. I have now been through three compassionate release motions in the last several years, and going through this process for the families of victims of violent crimes just one single time is too much. She says the panel should consider victim families and show them compassion. The Sentencing Commission says it'll accept public comments on its proposals until March 14th. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, students at six universities and colleges in Florida staged a walkout today. They're protesting state officials' move to share health care information about transgender students. That story is still ahead. A late-day rally on Wall Street led the Dow to close a third of a percent higher, about 110 points. It ended the day at 33,154. S&P rose more than 1 percent to close at 4012. The Nasdaq picked up nearly three-quarters of a percent to close at 11,590. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. Cambridge-based Moderna expects to make far less money from the sale of COVID vaccines this year. Today, the company predicted that revenue from COVID-19 shots will drop 73 percent this year as demand continues to slow. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa, with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Check back on the news with WBUR this evening. You can tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're heading home from work or getting settled for the night. The forecast is coming up. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
There is a winter weather advisory that went into effect about 20 minutes ago, and it'll be in effect until 4 tomorrow morning. Wintry mix likely for this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures dip a few more degrees overnight to about 27, and tomorrow reaching just above freezing. Should have sunny skies and some gusty breezes. 29 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tomorrow marks one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. NPR Moscow correspondent Charles Maines is one of the few Western journalists who remained in Russia after the war began. He reports on how life there has changed. Our story starts on the balcony of an apartment on the sixth floor. It's close to midnight in the outskirts of St. Petersburg. What we are looking at, um, this is like the spare parts for the night vision. It's a night vision scope to see in the dark, military grade. And this is the original box. And this is Anton, no surname by request. He's worried he'll end up on a Western travel ban. For Anton, is part of an informal volunteer network that provides badly needed equipment to Russian troops in Ukraine, inspired, he tells this American reporter, by a familiar phrase. A thing which Kennedy said, don't ask what a country can do for you, ask yourself what you can do for your country. What Anton can do is try and help a Russian military campaign in trouble. The original invasion, poorly planned, he says, the mobilization of additional troops, a total mess. But Anton says the second guessing, that's all for another time. Because he has no choice but to support his troops now that they're in Ukraine. Is it a good war or is it a bad war? The main thing is not to try to change global things in our country right now. Because if you will start this discussion now, you will lose. A year ago, in the days before the Russian invasion, I was in Rostov-on-Don, in southern Russia, reporting near the Ukrainian border. What struck me then, and still does, is just how many people were convinced war with Ukraine was impossible. Andrei Rosli, local instructor at Rostov-on-Don's journalism school, told me the very idea was just media hype. I can't name one friend who's even remotely worried about a war, he told me. If there was a military buildup, we would have seen it. The next day, President Putin announced the invasion had begun. And life in Russia began to change. The Kremlin quickly criminalized anything that contradicted the government line, even calling the war an actual war was banned. With journalists facing years of prison under new censorship laws, the vast majority of Russia's independent media scene shut down. One of the early victims, the Echo of Moscow radio station, in the capital. A beacon of free speech dating to its launch in the latter years of the USSR, Echo, as Russians call it, found its signal cut mid-broadcast. Today, propaganda blankets the airwaves and extols the conflict as a war of necessity to defend Russian speakers in Ukraine or protect the homeland 
and a vast majority of Russians, some 80% according to polls, agree. If there is a support of war, the state would not probably introduce this new draconian laws. But Ivan Kurilov, an academic researcher in St. Petersburg, is among those who argue Russian views on the war are far more circumspect. He notes, for example, that there was no crackdown after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 because it was relatively popular with the public. And Kurilov says that's not the case now. Western media and Western politicians' first reaction was to accept the Russian propaganda thesis that all the Russians support the war, this is Russia's war against Ukraine, which is plain wrong. I mean, that is a Kremlin war, not anything that the Russian people wanted. Back in the fall, I went to check in on a protest against the draft in Moscow. It turned out to be one of the last. Riot troops were positioned well in advance. Agents in street clothes filmed everyone using small cameras. I approached a young Russian guy watching from the sidelines to ask what he thought about what was happening. As he started to answer, police approached and took him away. So everybody I seem to talk to is getting arrested or being filmed. So I think we will wrap this up soon. Meanwhile, it seemed everywhere you looked, people were leaving the country. I can't do like scene about the flowers and butterflies when I think about the people dying from the bombs. Svetlana Mitveva is from the northern city of Murmansk. She also fronts the band Wooden Whales, a bright spot in Russia's indie music scene in recent years. When we met in Moscow, she was about to join her husband, who'd fled the draft for Kazakhstan, one of hundreds of thousands of Russians who've left the country over the past year, and not because she or they wanted to. For me, the war was like this very angry grandpa sitting and he feels like everyone hates him and he decided to like make it worse. And yeah, for me, it was like a very, the cheating. Cheating, she said, because their future had been stolen by a country and leader increasingly obsessed with the past. From the very beginning of the war, President Putin has sought to draw direct parallels between the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II and the current military campaign against so-called neo-Nazis in present-day Ukraine. In May, I watched the parade on Red Square for Victory Day, when Russia honors the some 20 million Soviets, including Ukrainians, who died fighting Hitler's armies. Tanks and soldiers paraded past the Kremlin and President Putin's voice echoed across the square. It felt like one of the most important events that had ever happened was happening all over again, only in front of your eyes. We have already had once uh, this victory in uh, 1945. Andrei Nikolaevich, an older Moscovite I met there, told me the Nazis have returned. And we expect peace, but peace should be with uh, victory over the Nazis new Nazis who occupied all the country of uh, Ukraine. Do you worry about Russian forces killing other people, though, like innocent civilians, too? No, it's uh, all fake, because uh, we don't kill human beings that are peaceful. We kill only the soldiers. 
Our story ends where it started, in St. Petersburg, Putin's hometown. This time, in the studio of the artist, Elena Osipova. Osipova was born in the city, just months after the Soviet victory in 1945, back when it was called Leningrad. She lost family members to the Nazi siege of the city. Like the people I saw in Red Square, Osipova had never forgotten the war. But she had drawn different conclusions. How could Russia, which suffered more than anyone in World War II, attack another country, she asked. Osipova is well-known locally. Her participation in anti-government protests, usually holding political artworks of her own making, had earned her the nickname The Conscience of St. Petersburg. Russia is not Putin, the conscience tells me. Her country, she said, gifted the world ideas, art, science, and literature. In Osipova's paintings, Russia is a bird, capable of soaring to fantastic heights, but one that after a year of war and repression, she now shows as wounded and struggling to find its way. Charles Maine's NPR News, St. Petersburg. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the black Mormon who's using his church's theology to teach anti-racist principles. That story is coming up in just about 25 minutes. Lots of slowdowns on the roads this afternoon, including on the Mass Turnpike, where the speed limit is down to 40 miles an hour now. Should be tough going on the roads for several hours. Snow mixing with freezing rain, temperatures dipping to about 27 degrees. And then for tomorrow, a change in the weather. Mostly sunny skies for Friday. Still chilly, about 33 degrees to start, but it could slump to the low 20s with a stiff wind during the day. And then the weekend is looking cloudy with seasonable temperatures in the mid-20s on Saturday and the mid-30s on Sunday. Tickets for many Red Sox summer games are on sale starting today. The box office for single-game tickets open this morning. It covers games from June 12th to July 26th. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. One year ago, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Over the past few hours, I've seen explosions in the sky. I've felt the shaking of the windows. A war of attrition enters its second year. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. New details are emerging about the massive train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. A preliminary report released by the National Transportation Safety Board today says the train's crew members did not receive a critical warning about an overheated axle until just before the derailment. NTSB Chairwoman Jennifer Hemendi says the derailment could have been avoided. We've talked to community members who are suffering health effects, have pets who've died, have damage to businesses and homes. But I can tell you this much, this was 100% preventable. We call things accidents. There is no accident. The train operator, Norfolk Southern, is working with the EPA to clean up the area. 
Utility crews in Michigan are working to restore electricity to hundreds of thousands of customers after Wednesday's ice storm. Russ McNamara from member station WDET reports for many, it will be days until the lights are back on. Ice accumulation over a half an inch in some places snapped trees and thousands of power lines across a wide swath of lower Michigan. Trevor Lauer is the president of DTE Electric. He says despite utility crews' best efforts, full restoration will take time. I would expect that we'll restore 100,000 or or slightly more than 100,000 customers. And my expectation is is by Sunday we'll have 95% of the customers back in power. That's little comfort to many in Metro Detroit where overnight temperatures will be well below freezing the next three nights. And with trees still coated in ice, there's concern high winds could hinder repairs and lead to more down lines. For NPR News, I'm Russ McNamara in Detroit. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 108 points. This is NPR. Snow ice and freezing rain are causing problems across many parts of the northern U.S. today from the Dakotas to New England. Airlines have delayed or canceled thousands of flights in the U.S. because of the weather. According to FlightAware.com, more than 1,000 flights within, into, or out of the United States have been canceled. The European Union's executive arm is banning its employees from having TikTok on any phone they use for official business. Terry Schultz reports the decision follows a U.S. order for federal and state government workers to uninstall the Chinese-owned app. The European Commission says cybersecurity concerns led to its decision to require employees to remove TikTok from their company phones. The Commission says TikTok's policies do not meet EU data privacy standards because the app's staff may access personal information of European users. EC spokeswoman Sonia Gospodinova. The measure aims to protect the Commission against cybersecurity threats and actions which may be exploited for cyber attacks against the corporate environment of the Commission. If Commission staff can access their official accounts on their personal phones, they must also remove TikTok from those or remove the apps that access commission data. They have until March 15th to make the changes or face consequences. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A winter storm continues to drop sleet and light snow in parts of Boston and the South Shore. Another icy mix of sleet and freezing rain is expected to move through the area tonight. That will make driving and walking on untreated sidewalks extremely slippery. In Worcester, the city has put a street parking ban in place. The storm is affecting Logan Airport. More than 500 flights have been canceled or delayed today, according to the flight tracking website FlightAware. The speed limit on the Mass Turnpike has been lowered to 40 miles an hour between Boston and Palmer because of the cold and wet conditions. The state is modifying its plans to completely close the Sumner Tunnel in Boston between May and September of this year. The State Department of Transportation is changing the schedule for Phase 2 of the tunnel's restoration project to reduce the impact on traffic. Instead of closing the Sumner for four months, it will be closed for two months from July 5th until August 31st. That's when there is typically lower traffic volume. The new plan will require an additional closure again next year between July and August. Ongoing weekend closures of the tunnel will continue until this July, except for some holiday weekends. For the second time in a month, Encore Boston Harbor Casino is 
accepted illegal bets on a Massachusetts college sports team. State law bans betting on in-state college teams unless they're in a tournament. The Gaming Commission Sports Wagering Director Bruce Band says Encore accepted bets on the BC women's basketball team in the past few days. He says the violation appears to be a software problem in the technology that Encore uses. Band says the casino is temporarily halting all similar wagering as a result. They are not taking any bets on uh, NCAA women's basketball because it's the only way they can stop that from being offered. So uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what that glitch is. Ban says he expects the casino to update state regulators on the problem in the next week or so. It is 29 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu. It's a wintry mix likely for the remainder of the afternoon and the evening and overnight tonight as well. Temperatures dip to about 27, just a couple of degrees lower than where they are right now. And then tomorrow reaching just above freezing should have sunny skies, gusty breezes, and then falling to the mid-20s later in the day. 29 degrees now in Boston at 437. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Nigeria, it is virtually impossible to get hold of cash. Old banknotes of specific denominations were made invalid earlier this month, and the new notes that replace them are scarce. Authorities say the policy is meant to target corrupt figures who hoard illicit funds. But in a country where millions of people rely on cash, frustrations are at boiling point and thus just days ahead of of elections. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. If you want to know what ordinary people are talking about in Lagos, there are few better places than a busy newspaper stand. There's a crowd of men pouring over the front pages here. It's almost a daily ritual to read and debate the news of the day. And almost all the headlines are dominated by the Naira crisis. One reads Naira chaos grounds economy. And that's the one story people here want to talk about. Just because of the incoming election, and they are making us to look as if we are fools. We have not ever in life experienced the issue of scarcity of cash. So I don't know how governments want the citizens of the country to survive. That's Mogu Kinsley, a civil servant, and his frustration is echoed by everyone else. The trigger for the crisis has been a controversial policy by outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari and Nigeria's central bank. Most old notes were made invalid in February, but the banks are barely dispensing the new notes, so people can't get money from their accounts, and businesses relying on cash sales are being hurt. I'm here in Obalinde, a busy intersection of small businesses, market traders and bus stops. Across the road from the newsstand, bus drivers wait for passengers and call out destinations. But it's taking longer than usual because many of the passengers don't have the cash 
to make the journey? By now, on the normal day, supposed to be loading my second trip because I arrived there, I think around uh, six. If I don't see full load now, considering I will discharge my passenger and go. Over the last month, anger in the country has been mounting and now it has reached the tipping point. People have taken to the streets all over the country. In some places, banks have been set alight and ATMs destroyed. And the man many blame for this chaos, President Buhari, has asked for calm. I'm fully aware of the current hardship you are facing as a result of some policies of the government which are meant to bring overall improvement to the country. God willing, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. At this stage in the election, campaigns are usually awash with cash. Buhari said that the target of the policy are figures who have hoarded illicit funds and to stop politicians rigging elections. But many ordinary people feel caught in the crossfire. There are around 100 people here crowded around the only ATM machine that's working in the area. It's about 12.30 in the afternoon and people have been here for hours. Some people even slept here overnight. Occasionally there are fights breaking out and frustrations are boiling over. Days ahead of the elections, scenes like this have become depressingly familiar. They're saying you can't take more than 2,000. Yes, for other banks. Look at other banks here. None of them are paying. Look at them. They're not paying. Mr. Ikechuku, like everyone else here, wants to talk and voice their frustration. To me, to each other, to anyone who will listen. Amid all the shouting, one man walks quietly over and introduces himself. My name is Emeka David. I'm a citizen of Nigeria. I'm not a proud citizen though. Why are you not a proud citizen? No, no, I cannot be proud of this country because the country has messed a lot of people up. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. Thousands of university students protested across Florida today. It's part of a statewide campaign to call out what they see as Governor Ron DeSantis' attacks on public education. At Florida International University in Miami, students marched across campus chanting, Let teachers teach and we say gay. Kate Payne of member station WLRN was there. And Kate, describe the scene and tell us about what policies they were protesting specifically. So here at Florida International University, there were at least 100 students and community members protesting today, and they were calling out the state for requesting data from public universities on which students were seeking gender-affirming care on campus, treatments like hormone therapy and puberty blockers. They were also protesting Governor Ron DeSantis' pledge to defund diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts across public universities and his efforts to try and restrict how race and identity and history can be talked about in the classroom. Did any of the students you met tell you about how they're personally being affected by these policies? They did. So I spoke with Kaylee LaChapelle, who was one of the main organizers of the protest and is the president of the Pride Student Union on campus. And they said they're hearing from students that they're losing sleep, that they're scared, that they're really rethinking if they want to stay in the state of Florida. La Chapelle says that virtually everything that they do on campus falls under diversity, equity, and inclusion, including the Pride Student Union, which they said changed their life. Um, it was the first time I found community. It was the first time I felt people that actually, you know, were like me, that, you know, believed in the same things, actually supported me, respected me, made me feel included. And that was my first experience on this campus, and it never stopped. And now with Governor DeSantis threatening to ban DEI activities on campuses, 
LaChapelle is worried they'll lose that community. How are universities responding to these directives from the state government? Well, the public universities are state institutions, so they have to comply. Uh, here at Florida International University, the school says they don't offer any of these healthcare services for transgender students on campus. So there wasn't really anything to report to the state. The school also told me that they don't track how many students on campus identify as trans, but it's, it's not believed to be very many. And as far as some of the other state policies affecting DEI, some professors are scaling back or, or dropping classes that they worry state officials won't approve of. And so I, I am hearing from students and faculty that they see this as political interference and, and they worry that it jeopardizes the legitimacy of these public universities. And, and what more have you heard about the politics behind these policies? Well, students I talked with today say that they see this as a way for Governor DeSantis to fire up the conservative base for his expected run for president in 2024. Here is Oscar Alvarez, a computer science student at FIU. I think that DeSantis is aware that there is a rise in the far right. And alongside Trump as a competitor for the presidential campaign, they're trying to one-up each other on how, how they can entice this base and agitate this base who sees these culture wars as a real issue. And Alvarez says his family came to the U.S. from Cuba where they were fleeing authoritarianism and he says that's what he's seeing now from the DeSantis administration. And the governor says, you know, he's accounting for property tax for, for taxpayer money and, and stopping what he says is woke ideology. That's Kate Payne, education reporter at member station WLRN in Miami. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The new year came with a lot of new spending for folks across the country who bought more cars, clothes, and restaurant meals. But businesses aren't sure how long that spending spree will last. There's a lot riding on the answer because consumer spending is by far the biggest driver of the overall economy. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Warmer than usual weather in January seemed to give shoppers a second wind. People flocked to car dealerships, home improvement centers, even department stores last month. Restaurant sales jumped more than 7%. That's welcome news for Ohio-based restaurant owner Cameron Mitchell, who operates dozens of eateries in 14 states, ranging from high-end steakhouses to casual Mexican fare. But Mitchell's not counting his chicken dinners just yet. I'm still optimistic at this point in time, and I'm anxious to get another month under our belt. Mitchell has noticed that customers seem to be gravitating to his lower-priced restaurants. He's decided to skip his usual spring price increase. That's partly because food costs are finally leveling off, but also because he worries that after nearly two years of high inflation, customers are feeling tapped out. That's just what my gut is telling me as an operator. 
that we've kind of come to the end of that road. I mean, people a year ago, they knew. They knew we had to raise our prices. It was obvious, and they were accepting of that. But I think people want inflation to come down, and I think they are, are not as tolerant anymore of price increases. The nation's largest retailer told a similar cautious story this week. Walmart is expecting only modest sales growth this year. CEO Doug McMillan says shoppers are buying essentials, like groceries, but skipping other, more profitable merchandise. Customers are still spending money. It's obviously not as clear to us what the back half of the year looks like. The Federal Reserve has been trying to get shoppers to slow down by raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. Economist Ian Shepardson of Pantheon Macroeconomics says the Fed's efforts are working, despite the apparent rebound in January sales. I think the trends are, from the Fed's perspective, quite favorable. Economic growth is slowing, inflation is falling, but these things never happen in a straight line. Right now, the economic roadmap seems particularly curvy. Lots of people have jobs and money in their pockets, but prices are high, and overdue payments on car loans and credit card bills are starting to creep up. People are spending less money on big-ticket items, but more money on services such as car repair and travel. Vacation travel to Las Vegas is setting new records, according to Steve Hill, who heads the city's Convention and Visitors Authority. People realized what they were missing during COVID. I think it has driven a real energy around getting back to experiences. And we see, and I'm sure you do as well in the numbers, a shift from buying stuff to buying experiences. Restaurant owner Cameron Mitchell is betting on that. He's planning to open about half a dozen new restaurants this year, including a steak and seafood venue overlooking the Las Vegas Strip. We feel pretty good about things. If there is a recession, I don't think it's going to be a deep one. All signs point to not being a deep one. Yes, it's a little bit of uncertainty out there, but on the same token, the opportunities we have in front of us, we think are are really well-founded and we're excited to bring them on board. But Mitchell is also watching his own pennies. Some of his new outlets are taking the place of restaurants that closed during the pandemic, which helps to keep a lid on spending. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, what life's been like for a former Swamska couple who now live in Ukraine and have endured one year of war there. In about 15 minutes, how the World Food Program is getting aid to people who have survived the earthquake in Syria. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Pretty slippery out there underfoot, or if you're driving, it's tricky as well. In, in fact, uh, speeds on the Mass Turnpike, the speed limit is now down to 40 miles an hour. Look for tough going through the evening hours, snow mixing with freezing rain, temperatures about 27 overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, still chilly, should wake up to about 33 degree temperatures, but then slumping to the low 20s with a strong wind through the day tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, it's been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. We bring together a host of people we talked to then to reflect with us, from a local student and local singer on what's happening at home and here, to Congressman Jake Auchincloss, who will reflect on what might be next in the ongoing war. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Helen Chervitz and Leon Rurikovsky lived in Swampscott, north of Boston, for about 15 years. They raised a child there. They moved to New York for several years and then went to their native country for Leon's investment business. The country is Ukraine. That was more than 10 years ago, and they say they got stuck in Ukraine due to work. Russian troops invaded the country a year ago tomorrow. We introduced you to Helen and Leon not long after the war began. They are still in Kyiv today. Helen and Leon, how are you? We have seen better days, but we are doing all right. Yes, very good, considering. Uh, that's, you know, you are such optimists, and I'm really happy to hear that you're doing okay, because at the time we first spoke to you about a year ago, Helen, you said the conditions were livable. Uh, Leon, you said you felt relatively safe, but we know that a lot has transpired in the last year, and Kiev has been targeted by Russians for more bombing. Have you been in the line of any kind of Russian offense? Um, the bomb exploded two blocks from our house and all our windows got shattered and I saw smoke. I was doing my exercises on the balcony and my neighbor looked up and she said, like, Helen, do you know what it is? I, oh, just a bomb. I was, thought I was joking, but it was really two blocks and there's a, um, the block where the bomb exploded. All the windows were broken. They're still covered like in wood, like it's a World War II. That was as close as... Uh, we got two explosions, but actually the other ones were 15 minutes right, 10 minutes right from our apartment building. Yes, and I still, like a year ago, I still feel uh, relatively safe because I think that the probability of the missile getting into our window is extremely low. But are you both hearing the sirens go off? I mean, how do you know? All the time. All, all the time. The time yes. Ceaseless sounds. Yes. And actually, whereas a bomb exploded near my house, there is a park and I was running in that park. That morning I did not go running. And how do you know when it might be a block away? How do you know when you need to run for cover and do you have a place to run to? We never did. We never ran for cover. They uh, never went to bomb yeah. shelter because they'd rather watch Netflix at homes and being underground with baby crying and dogs and people crowded. I mean, people were putting tents uh, in the subway. And uh, these uh, sirens, it's just like, for example, a loud music that somebody is playing nearby all the time. It disturbs you. That's that's all. The no, music that yeah, you don't like. The music that you don't <laughs> like. <laughs> what would be the music you would choose to be listening to when the uh, sirens go off? Rap. <laughs> <laughs> Bossa Nova. I don't know. Have you turned uh, our radio on? Uh, I think Leon reacts more to the sirens than I do. So what is it like on a day-to-day basis to live in a country that is in the midst of a war? I mean, how does that affect you aside from the sirens, aside from the fear? What else are you experiencing? I would not say experience fear, but there are a lot of inconveniences because of blackouts. 
And usually they're scheduled, but there are a lot of emergency blackouts and people are forced to put to set their alarm clocks at two in the morning to do laundry, to do some heating, uh, to do some cooking. Because so, that's and, when the power uh, is on. Because Right, because uh, most of uh, the households depend on electric appliances and have like uh, electric stove. And those who have gas stove, they uh, host... Uh, relatives and family or friends and so they can cook at least for the children and when you don't have any power what happens we were lucky enough and we are lucky enough because central ukrainian radio is in our backyard so we did not uh, experience blackouts that often what do we do we read with the candlelight we have romantic candlelight dinner <laughs> Helen, I know you've put your U.S. ties to good use and reached out to synagogues here in the U.S. and in the Boston area for help in getting generators and battery chargers and other equipment that people can use there in Ukraine when they are without power and have no heat. How did you make those requests and how have they been received? I just uh, went on Google and started to contact Different synagogues sending letters with my articles and with a wish list of appliances. And uh, I got some responses, not as many as I hoped I would receive, but still uh, those appliances are coming and they keep coming. And people are so grateful. Some of them are literally crying. And uh, some of them saying they uh, have never thought that such miracle works uh, Appliances existed, and as one put it very nicely, that it does not just illuminate my place, it illuminates my heart. Before the heavens at power station, they were just sitting in the dark and cold. Yes, or going into their cars and using their cars for uh, to uh, uh, recharge as their batteries. Generators on the move. Yeah. You have a daughter who is still living in the greater Boston area, and I wonder if she has asked you to please come back. Many times. Many times. And actually, my daughter initiated this project because she collected first $3,000 among her friends, and I was placing orders on Amazon with the money she collected. And what do you tell her when she says, please come back to the U.S.? We can't leave Lian's business and people. It's a lot of responsibilities. Like Lian's business is the major reason because there are employees and their families. So how to abandon the project and people? Uh, Ukrainian employees. I know you're both extremely busy, and um, I wonder what you're going to be doing when we hang up from this conversation. We are going to have dinner, believe it or not. Maybe uh, in addition to dinner, I will have a glass of wine. I, actually, what happened um, since the war started, Leon started to cook. So, and Leon Googles and finds uh, recipes. So, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing I'm, well. Duh. I'm in good, good hands. So, I never know what's for dinner. It's always surprising. It's always delicious. So, my life has changed for the better, actually. <laughs> One of the unexpected byproducts of the situation right. that you're in that is that can be otherwise bleak. Um, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm so happy, as I know our listeners will be, that you're doing well. Thank you, Leon and Helen. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Take care. Helen Shervitz and Leon Rurikovsky lived in Swamskut for 15 years, but they've been back in their native Ukraine for more than a decade. They've lived in Kiev throughout the war, 
that began one year ago. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's a winter weather advisory in effect until 4 tomorrow morning. A wintry mix likely for this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures dip a few more degrees overnight to about 27. And then tomorrow reaching just above freezing, although colder later in the day, should have sunshine through the day. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NATO countries have been alive through the past year, but there are big divisions on how the conflict in Ukraine should end. Managing this question of the future with Russia is the big challenge. NATO's divisions coming up. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, federal officials released a preliminary report on the derailment of a train carrying toxic chemicals in Ohio three weeks ago. Millions of Americans are about to see cuts in their federal food benefits under SNAP. Food pantries are starting to look for ways to keep up with demand. We are going to stay on top of making sure that we fulfill those needs as much as we can. Also, the music of the local band Little Fuss. I'm not too comfortable. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration plans to announce sweeping sanctions on Russia. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden is working with G7 leaders and Ukraine's president on holding Moscow accountable. President Biden teased during a surprise visit to Kyiv that the United States would slap more sanctions against Russia. American people know it matters. Unchecked aggression is a threat to all of us. The White House did not outline what steps the G7 leaders would take to increase pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin. But officials say the U.S. sanctions would target more Russian banks, the defense and tech sectors, as well as those who help Putin evade sanctions. The White House also plans to announce new economic, energy and security assistance for Ukraine. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The National Transportation Safety Board says the crew of a freight train carrying toxic chemicals that derailed in Ohio this month had tried to stop the train after getting a critical safety alert. But as NPR's David Shaper explains, a preliminary NTSB report does not pinpoint a probable cause for the derailment. 
The NTSB's preliminary report indicates that the Norfolk Southern train was traveling at 47 miles an hour, slightly below the speed limit, as it approached East Palestine the evening of February 3rd. A trackside sensor alerted the crew that a wheel bearing was overheating to a dangerous degree, so the engineer immediately applied the brakes. An automatic braking system engaged too, but by the time the crew was able to stop the train and get out to inspect it, several cars had derailed and were engulfed in flames. Ultimately, 38 train cars derailed, 11 of which carried toxic chemicals. The NTSB continues to investigate what caused the overheating and what safety measures could have minimized the damage. David Shaper, NPR News. Disgraced South Carolina attorney Alex Murdoch took the stand today in his murder trial. Murdoch denying he killed his wife and son, though he admitted to lying about when he last saw them alive. Murdoch is charged in the 2021 shootings, facing 30 years to life in prison. Prosecutors have sought to paint him as a liar who killed his wife and child because he wanted sympathy to buy time to cover up his alleged financial misdeeds. Revised figures are taking some of the shine off U.S. economic growth at year's end. NPR Scott Horsley reports. The Commerce Department says the U.S. economy grew a little bit more slowly at the end of last year than initially reported. Revised figures show GDP grew at an annual rate of 2.7 percent in the fourth quarter, down from an earlier estimate of 2.9 percent. Consumer spending was slightly weaker than first reported, while the nation's trade deficit was slightly larger. Weekly claims for unemployment benefits continue to point to a very strong job market. New claims were down again last week from an already low level. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow up 108 points. The Nasdaq rose 83 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston and Point South are continuing to reckon with snow, sleet, and rain, while areas north and west of Boston are in a bit of a lull in the region's winter storm now. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the messy weather will ramp up again later tonight, and the slippery road conditions will continue right into tomorrow. More icy mix moving in, some areas of sleet and freezing rain this evening into the overnight. Use caution when traveling. Anything untreated will be slippery. Think sidewalks, driveways, secondary roads especially. It's light rain on Cape Cod and the south coast where we'll be above freezing. Now tomorrow, an Arctic front blasts through with falling temperatures and wind chill values below zero tomorrow night into Saturday morning. We won't get out of the 20s on Saturday afternoon, but Sunday won't be as chilly in the mid-30s for highs. Some hit or miss snow showers both weekend days won't amount to much, a few coatings here or there, then a more significant storm is likely to impact us Monday night into Tuesday of next week. Mass Turnpike is down to 40 miles an hour now between Boston and Palmer. On Route 495 southbound, there are delays and several lanes are closed in Westford due to a multiple vehicle crash. The State Department of Transportation says there are just under 1,000 pieces of equipment trying to keep the roads safe out there. There have already been over 500 delays and cancellations at Logan Airport. State aid to cities and towns and school districts will be going up in Governor Maura Healy's budget. The Healy administration said today her spending plan will increase unrestricted local aid by about 2 percent and Chapter 70 school aid by nearly 10 percent. The governor's budget is expected to be presented next week. It will contain almost $8.4 billion in total local aid programs. The administration says that is $635 million more than in the current fiscal year. And Encore Boston Harbor is under scrutiny for taking illegal sports bets for the second time in a month. The State Gaming Commission's sports wagering director said today the new violation occurred in the last few days when the casino wrongly accepted bets on a Boston College basketball game. Massachusetts law only allows betting on in-state college teams when they're in a tournament. 
The Gaming Commission says the latest violation appears to be the result of a glitch in technology that Encore uses. 28 degrees now overnight tonight. Snow, freezing rain and sleet down just a bit to about 27 or 26 degrees. And for tomorrow, should start out right around freezing with sunny skies, some cold winds, afternoon temperatures falling to about 23. This is WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. People in Syria were already struggling to get food and other basic supplies even before the earthquakes hit this month. They've been in a civil war for more than a decade. The parts of Syria hit hardest by the quake are controlled by rebels, and the government has made it difficult for international aid to reach them. That's slowly beginning to change. Ken Crosley is Syria country director and representative for the UN's World Food Program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ari. Pleasure to be with you today. I want to begin by playing you a cut of tape from my colleague, Ruth Sherlock, who entered northern Syria in the first week after the quake. And here's what she told me on February 13th, 10 days ago. We didn't hear any ambulances because there were hardly any. We didn't really see much of the heavy machinery that we'd we'd seen in Turkey being used to try to excavate these destroyed buildings. In the town of Jinderis, on this one street with collapsed homes on either side, the mayor of the town, Mohammed Hafar, had this question. From the first day, where is, where is the world? Why we are alone? Why we are alone? Where is the world? Why are we alone? Ken Crosley, has that changed? Are your teams now able to reach Syrian communities like Jinderis? Yeah, I think the mayor is asking a very legitimate question, is where is the world, uh, right, when the people in Syria do need the world the most to be stepping up for them. I think when you're speaking with me, I work for the World Food Program. Our primary focus, of course, is on making sure that people uh, in crisis have enough to eat. We, in fact, were there within hours. We were able to provide food for hot meals. We were able to provide um, sort of ready-to-eat food, so tin foods, you know, things that don't need cooking. Uh, Even now, within just a few weeks, we've been able to reach nearly a million people of the majority of them in the parts of Syria where you're discussing right now. As I mentioned, people in Syria were experiencing widespread food insecurity and hunger even before the earthquakes. And so right now, how wide is the gap between the need and what you're able to provide? Well, th- this is exactly the issue. And, and maybe just to clarify a couple things, the people in Syria, all of Syria, including in northwest Syria, had been in a major, major economic challenge. So the conflict had displaced literally millions of people. They were homeless, very, very little livelihood or possibility to work for themselves. So we have been assisting for food assistance, five and a half million people every month, including 1.4 million people right there inside of northwest Syria, and and with barely enough to sort of scrape by. The people who were receiving assistance were also the ones who were impacted by the earthquake. They were in exactly the same places, they were uh, hit hard, and then, to add sort of a further aggravation, they're now taking in their neighbors, they're taking in extended families. So the people who had so little are now needing eat even more, and so the gap is growing and growing. I mean, just for this year alone, I need $450 million to maintain the food assistance support to everybody we're trying to reach, $150 million specifically and directly related only to the earthquake response for the next six months to try and help these people get back a little bit uh, on their feet. 
In the early days, we saw images and heard descriptions of these pancaked buildings and towns reduced to rubble. Now that we're a few weeks in, can you just describe what life in these communities is like at this point? Life is still very, very jittery for the people in those communities where the devastation has been the worst. Everybody has lost somebody. This was just starting to calm down, and then the second earthquake uh, re-invoked all of that. So there is this jittery, uh, apprehensive feeling in, in, in the air. There has been work to remove rubble in some of the areas to start cleaning up the streets again. But again, when that relies on heavy equipment, when that relies on fuel, which is in very short supply and very expensive here, it's difficult to see that. So the, the sense of return to normalcy is delayed. It's going to be long delayed. And the sense of sort of continuing uh, isolation, dislocation, apprehension, anxiety, frustration, and just real deep immediate need is here and it is prolonged. The UN says there are now three open border crossings where aid can enter Syria from Turkey. How much do you depend on the whims of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who had been ostracized from the international community, to allow you to do the work you need to do to help people who are starving? It's true. There are new border crossings opening up into northwest Syria. And the answer is that, is we rely heavily on negotiated access, negotiation with all of the parties who have influence over whether we can move in safely. Uh, and so it's a negotiation every single time we try and cross any border. And that is changing. And this earthquake has changed that. The earthquake has given some impetus to start uh, relaxing some of the previous restrictions which had been there. I'm cautiously optimistic that it will continue. That's a, a continued priority for, for all of the UN system and for us, particularly in WFP. Ken Crossley is with the World Food Program. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari. Pleasure to chat. In nearly a year of war in Ukraine, NATO allies have tried to present a united front. There are big divisions, though, not only over which weapons to send to Ukraine, but also over how the conflict should end and what role, if any, Russia should play in a post-war Europe. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Brussels. Throughout this war, the core message of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has been unity. This is how he put it to NPR in an interview in Brussels. It is in our security interest to support Ukraine. And if you look across the lines, there's strong uh, continued uh, support on both sides of the Atlantic. But there are also sharp divisions of opinion on the way forward. For instance, Germany is routinely reluctant to send heavier weapons. Chancellor Olaf Scholz explained his thinking last month to Bloomberg News. We support Ukraine as long as it is necessary with all the means we can use, but also always avoiding that this war is escalating to a war between Russia and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO allies also have different attitudes towards Russia itself. Late last year, French President Emmanuel Macron said NATO would eventually have to address Russia's security concerns. Ce sujet fera partie this topic will be one of the topics for peace, and therefore it must be prepared. What are we ready to do? How will we protect our allies and member states? By giving guarantees for its own security to Russia the day it returns to the table. But for NATO allies in Eastern Europe, the notion of making security pledges to a nation that has relentlessly shelled Ukrainian cities is stomach-churning. And for them, it's also personal. They spent decades under Soviet domination. Linus Kojala runs the Eastern Europe Study Center. It's a Lithuanian think tank. This kind of rhetoric coming from the Western leaders uh, plays into the Kremlin's narrative 
because uh, I think uh, Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine not because of NATO, not because of security threats to Russia. Instead, because Putin wanted to stop Ukraine from drifting out of Russia's orbit and into the embrace of the West. He clearly stated that there shouldn't be Ukraine as a state because it's simply a part of Russia. So it's not because of NATO, it's because of Russia being an imperialistic power in today's Europe. Bruno Latay, a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund in Brussels, says NATO allies are also split on their ultimate goals after the war. The Nordics, Central and Eastern Europe, want Ukraine to win the war. Uh, those member states that are perhaps a bit more further away from Russia also want to, Ukraine to win the war, but are probably also interested in some sort of deal, some peace settlement too. Christy Rake, deputy director of Estonia's International Center for Defense and Security, says these different approaches are partly a function of distance and history. Being situated next to Russia, we sense uh, the threat, of course, very clearly. For countries that are geographically more remote, the threat is not existential. Rake says great power privilege plays a part as well. France and Germany are used to seeing Russia as one of the major powers in Europe and are used to thinking that, in the end, European security matters are settled and decided among the big powers. But NATO didn't follow that principle after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Some analysts say it failed to take Russia's historical anxieties into account. Zach Pakin is a researcher at the Center for European Policy Studies, a Brussels think tank. If the United States had not spent the past eight years, or in fact the past 14 years, openly declaring that Ukraine would become a member of NATO one day, and had the United States not spent the past several years openly talking about Ukraine as if it was a, a de facto ally already of the United States, I think we wouldn't be here right now. Pagan says Russia has to be a part of any lasting peace. One way or another, whether we like it or not, at some point, we will have to address the question of finding an adequate place for Russia in Europe that provides Russia's declared security concerns with a modicum of legitimacy. Uh, and if we don't do that, then we're going to be in trouble. Given Russia's brutality in Ukraine, there is no appetite for a public conversation on this now. And some say, as long as Putin remains in power, there shouldn't be one. Roland Freudenstein heads the Brussels office of the think tank Globsec. I think there will be very, very loud debates in both Germany and France and other West European countries between those who are saying, no, with Putin, we cannot make a deal anymore. And those who say that diplomacy is about talking to people we don't like, I have an impression that probably the people who say no peace with Putin will win the argument. Managing this question of the future with Russia is the big challenge for this year, for next year, Olga Olicker is a top analyst for the International Crisis Group in Brussels. One vision is the way to make Europe more secure is to weaken Russia as much as possible and build yourself up so that even if they rebuild, they'll still be scared of you. Olicker says the problem with that tack is Russia's already scared of NATO and it has nuclear weapons. The other option, she says, is this. You talk to them and you figure out ways of limiting activities like exercises, weapons deployments, and so forth that make it harder to start a new war. As Russia's invasion grinds into its second year, any such negotiations seem a long way off. 
But officials across Europe are already thinking about them and how to make sure that when this war in Ukraine finally ends, it's for good. Frank Langford, NPR News, Brussels. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, millions of Americans are about to see cuts to their federal food benefits under SNAP. Food pantries are beginning to look for ways to keep up with demand. That story and much more are still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. A late-day rally on Wall Street led the Dow to close a third of a percent higher, about 110 points. It ended the day at 33,154. S&P rose more than 1 percent to close at 4012, and the Nasdaq picked up nearly three-quarters of a percent to close at 11,590. Nine companies are slated to operate online sports betting when mobile wagering on athletic competition becomes legal in Massachusetts. Today, the State Gaming Commission approved temporary licenses to the companies that include FanDuel and boston DraftKings. The launch date is March 10th. Three other mobile betting companies say they'll be seeking licenses to operate in the state at a later date. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Roads are getting more slick as temperatures dip this evening. There are lots of slowdowns on the roads this afternoon. There was a multiple vehicle accident on Route 495 in Westford. That's resulted in several closed lanes with backups of about 15 minutes extending back to Chelmsford. Mass Turnpike has a speed limit now of 40 miles an hour. This is 90.9 WBUR, 27 degrees now. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The U.S. is helping Taiwan beef up its defenses in preparation for a possible attack from China, from adding more American military advisors to advising the Taiwanese military on what armaments to buy. This all comes as tensions between Washington and Beijing have heightened in the wake of the downing of a Chinese balloon. And amidst all this, California Congressman Ro Khanna led a bipartisan congressional delegation to Taipei this month, where he met with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen, among others. Khanna, a Democrat, is a member of the newly formed Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party, and he supports the One China policy. So... When we spoke this morning, I focused on his visit and whether that visit might have consequences for U.S.-China relations. Some might argue that these high-profile visits to Taiwan by politicians from the U.S. can be interpreted by Beijing as a provocation. I mean, you know, we all saw after then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last summer, the Chinese government 
ramped up military drills in the Taiwan Strait and incursions into Taiwan's airspace. So I am wondering, are you at all concerned that a visit by yet another congressional delegation to Taiwan might further provoke Beijing? I don't think so. Unfortunately, so far, it has not. I informed the Chinese ambassador, uh, as well as the foreign minister, who I know because he was the previous ambassador of my visit. And I said, look, I plan to go to Taiwan because I uh, believe in the economic partnership uh, with the United States. I believe in uh, their democracy. But I affirm the one China policy that has been our legacy since President Carter and since the Shanghai communique negotiated by Nixon. And I plan to come to China at some point in the future. I believe that we can avoid provocation if American politicians don't get ahead of their skis and don't start saying things that Taiwanese politicians are not saying. Can you explain, though, like how congressional visits like yours bolster the one China policy? Well, there are several things that congressional visits like mine do. One is it's important to figure out how we bring semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States. We made a big mistake by losing Morris Chang. He's an American expat. He was the number two person at Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments passed him over, partly because he was of Asian origin. And so he goes to Taiwan and sets up the entire semiconductor industry. I met with him and met with others to understand what the challenges of manufacturing in the United States were and how we could make sure TSMC succeeds in Arizona. That's Morris Chang's company. Second, I think it's important for American politicians to go there so we understand what the people of Taiwan want. Uh, They do not want, and their rhetoric does not espouse independence. Uh, They are fine with the status quo. They simply want peace, and they want help in terms of increasing their defense. This is across the board, and American politicians can help do that. And they want engagement with China, uh, which also uh, America can help facilitate. Yeah. I want to move on to the semiconductor industry, which you mentioned. You represent much of Silicon Valley. Now, President Biden has made it very, very clear that he wants to significantly boost the semiconductor industry here in the U.S. So can you tell us why Taiwanese semiconductor companies should want to help the U.S. do that, despite the fact that tensions between the U.S. and China keep growing? Well, I think Taiwanese companies will want some of the incentives that we've provided in the Chips and Science Act that I helped co-write. And the Chips and Science Act provides grants and provides tax incentives for any company that brings production to the United States, and TSMC is taking advantage of that. But a lot of the legacy chips, the chips that actually go into your cars, dishwashers, refrigerators, those are still being produced in China or offshore. And so what I see is that TSMC is going to continue to be at the leading edge of chip production, be used by companies like Apple and the iPhone or latest uh, devices, and that there's going to be an intermediate market that Intel and other American companies can fulfill. And it really will be the complement of Taiwan and the United States that has robust semiconductor production. Okay. I want to move on now to the U.S.'s approach to Taiwan, this so-called strategic ambiguity. How comfortable have you been personally with President Biden's repeated statements that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? I think we should stick to President Carter's formulation of the One China Policy and the Taiwan Relation Act, and that is that the United States would provide assistance in the support of Taiwan if there was a violation by China of the peaceful status quo. 
What that support looks like, I think, is purposely ambiguous, and partly it's circumstantial. Everyone assumes that China would invade Taiwan in an amphibious landing. I actually don't think that would be uh, the most logical step that China would take. A far more plausible and concerning step could be if they had a blockade stopping any energy supply coming into Taiwan. And they did that for a few days. What if they did that for a few weeks? How would we support Taiwan in that context? So I think it's very context specific and the reason we haven't spelled out the specificity. Well, regardless of what form any military aggression by China on Taiwan would take, do you believe the U.S. military should be directly involved if there were military aggression by China on Taiwan? I believe we should follow the Taiwan Relation Act, which is to say we would support Taiwan in its defense and leave the specifics to the commander-in-chief at that time. Do you think the U.S.'s approach to Taiwan so-called strategic ambiguity. Do you think that is a sustainable approach indefinitely? I do. I think the one-China policy and strategic ambiguity has stood us well for over 50 years. It's preserved the peace. It's allowed Taiwan to emerge as a thriving economy. And contemporary politicians, we ought to be very careful before throwing a model out that has really served well. Now, it may need tweaks. We have to recognize the heightened tensions. uh, But I think that formula is really done a good job. Well, your visit, you know, it was a bipartisan delegation and the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party that you serve on was created by House Republicans. Do you think helping Taiwan attracts the same strong bipartisan congressional support that's been key in supplying aid to Ukraine? I do. It's bipartisan in the United States that we need Taiwan to develop a defense capability to deter any potential military incursion. Uh, People recognize that a war in the Taiwan Straits would be devastating. It's also, by the way, transcends party lines in Taiwan, whether it's the DPP, KMT, or TPP, the three leading parties, they all believe that Taiwan needs to improve its defense. So this is a place I think we can make concrete progress. What about bipartisan support here in the U.S., in Congress? for a potential military intervention by the U.S., if there were any military aggression by China on Taiwan? Well, I don't think it will come to that. I think if we build Taiwan's defense capability and we affirm the one China policy and engage with China, then we can further peace in that region. And that, in my view, is also shared by a lot of the Taiwanese politicians. And that's why I think it's helpful for American politicians to go to Taiwan. They say, look, they've been living with the Communist China Party for decades. They've seen the ups and the downs. And they're very hopeful that war can be avoided. Democrat Ro Khanna of California speaking to us about his trip to Taiwan with a bipartisan congressional delegation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Sleet and freezing rain should keep on coming over the next several hours and into tonight. To Be careful if you're driving or walking anywhere. Secondary roads should be especially dicey. Tomorrow should be cold down to the mid-20s. Uh, we could start up around freezing, and the Arctic chill envelops the reason, uh, region that is. Temperatures, as I said, in the mid-20s, the wind chill factor making it feel well below zero tomorrow night and Saturday morning. At least it should be dry and mainly sunny for the day tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. 
Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Lesley University. Get started at lesley.edu. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, it's been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. We bring together a host of people we talked to then to reflect with us, from a local student and local singer on what's happening at home and here, to Congressman Jake Auchincloss, who will reflect on what might be next in the ongoing war. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is at the site of the massive train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio today. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is closely monitoring the cleanup of contaminants. Secretary Buttigieg is there today meeting with emergency responders and the Department of Transportation investigators who were on the ground within hours of the train derailing. He met with the community leaders, including the mayor and the fire chief, and received an update from the National Transportation Safety Board on their investigation. The Transportation Safety Board released a preliminary report today showing that the derailment was 100 percent preventable. Disgraced former R&B singer R. Kelly was sentenced today in Chicago to what will amount to one more year in federal prison. That's in addition to the 30 years he's currently serving on a separate sentence in New York. NPR's Anastasia Salukas reports Kelly was found guilty of making child pornography with three victims. Prosecutors had asked the Illinois federal court for Kelly to be sentenced to 25 years in prison to be served after the conclusion of his current 30-year prison term in New York on separate racketeering and sex trafficking convictions. Instead, the judge passed down a sentence of only one additional year in prison. Kelly, who is 56 years old, is expected to serve those sentences until he is in his late 80s. Kelly's lead defense attorney is Jennifer Bonjean, who also served as Bill Cosby's lawyer. She successfully had the comedian's sexual assault conviction overturned in 2021. Anastasia Tsiolkas, NPR News, New York. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 108 points. This is NPR News. The Pakistani government says it has discussed the threat of terrorism with neighboring Taliban authorities in Afghanistan. NPR's Dee Hadid reports the meeting came after growing tensions between the governments. The high-level meeting in Kabul occurred not even a week after a militant offshoot of the Taliban attacked a key police station in the Pakistani port city of Karachi, killing four men. And it followed an attack by the same offshoot on a mosque in late January that killed more than 100 people, mostly policemen. Pakistan accuses Taliban authorities of offering safe haven to the militants in neighbouring Afghanistan. But analysts say the Taliban is unlikely to crack down on the offshoot. It's a potential ally, and the Taliban already is cracking down on suspected ISIS militants. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Search and rescue operations are continuing in northern China. Dozens of people are still missing after a landslide buried a coal mine pit. At least five people are confirmed dead. Teams are using heavy machinery and sniffer dogs to try to reach those trapped under tons of rock and soil that toppled from the side of a mountain earlier this week. 
Recapping stocks on Wall Street today, all of the major indices closed higher. The Dow rose 108 points, NASDAQ up 83, the S&P 500 rose 21 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A winter storm continues to keep the area in its grips. Snow and sleet are falling in Boston and on the South Shore. Another batch of sleet and freezing rain is forecast for later tonight, which will mean more slippery roadways. There is a multiple car accident on Interstate 495 South in Westford now. It's blocking several lanes, so be careful if you're in that area. The speed limit on the Mass Turnpike between Boston and Palmer is down to 40 miles an hour. The state has about 840 pieces of equipment on the highways treating or plowing them now. Travel in and out of Logan Airport is a problem. The flight tracking website FlightAware says more than 550 flights have been delayed or canceled in and out of the city so far today. Today, uh, tomorrow, that is, marks one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A former Swamska couple, Helen Chervitz and Leon Rykovsky, have experienced the change in that country's capital. They've been in Kiev for the past 10 years. Chervitz says the war has brought frequent power blackouts during the day. Often electricity comes back at night. People are forced to set their alarm clocks at 2 in the morning to do laundry, to do some heating, uh, to do some cooking, because uh, most of uh, the households depend on electric appliances. Air sirens are another constant, she says in Kiev. Uh, Rakovsky compares the sound to music he doesn't like but just can't turn off. Yet they say that they're not afraid and they don't plan to leave the city anytime soon. Some religious leaders in Boston are calling for the formation of a coalition to address rising gun violence. Seven people have been killed in gun homicides in the city this year. Reverend Gregory Groover says clergy, social workers, and community leaders should join city officials and law enforcement and reach out to teenagers who are involved in gangs and encourage them to turn away from violence. Grewer is part of a coalition that formed in the 90s. After it did, there was a drop in murders. So we've done it before. And I think over the years, uh, we've become complacent. And now is the time to move beyond the complacency, to get up from the fences and come together and try to solve this problem. Groover and a group of ministers have met with the police commissioner, Michael Cox. He says they agree to meet every three months. There's been a setback for Cambridge-based Biogen. The federal government announced this week that Medicare will not cover patients' costs for the drug Biogen developed with a Japanese company. Studies have shown the drug Lakembi can slow the advancement of Alzheimer's disease, but Medicare officials say further studies are needed. They also say that although the Food and Drug Administration has given the drug an accelerated approval, the treatment has not yet received a full traditional approval, and that could trigger Medicare coverage. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, hosting a conversation with author and social commentator Fran Lebowitz on Thursday, March 9th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. There's a winter weather advisory in effect until 4 tomorrow morning. Pretty slick out there with an icy mix overnight tonight. Temperatures dipping to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, the way February is supposed to be, really cold. We should have temperatures in the mid-20s, but a strong wind making it feel well below zero. At least we're in for a sunny day today. Uh, Tomorrow, that is. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A judge in Colorado Springs said today there is enough evidence to try the suspect of the Club Q shooting on hate crimes. That shooting was last November. Five people were killed, at least 19 wounded at Club Q, a queer bar in Colorado Springs. Lucretia Wembley of Colorado Public Radio has been covering the hearing. Hey there, Lucretia. Hello. So this has been one of the big questions, right? Since the Club Q shooting, the motives have remained unknown. This hearing showed evidence that the suspected shooter was motivated by hate? Yes. So prosecutors basically laid out evidence from four police witnesses attempting to show how Anderson Lee Aldridge intentionally targeted Club Q. They said the 22-year-old defendant had posted neo-Nazi content online and visited the club six times before the day of the shooting. Witnesses also told police Aldridge used racial slurs as well as slurs against LGBTQ people. The judge approved trial on more than 300 charges, including hate crimes. Okay. Uh, So neo-Nazi content. What else? Tell me more about the evidence that prosecutors presented. Well, witness testimony revealed the suspect's mother may have forced the suspect to go to LGBTQ clubs. Police said they also found inside of Aldrich's home shooting targets with bullet holes, items used to build guns, as well as ammunition. And one of the targets had rainbow colors emanating from a bullseye in the middle. District Attorney Michael Allen said his team was able to charge hate crimes in this case in part because a couple years ago, Colorado changed its bias or hate crime law. He said to make hate charges stick, prosecutors used to have to prove someone acted specifically because of bias or hate. But the wording was changed that we only have to prove that somebody acted either wholly or in part by their bias towards a particular group. Okay, so that is uh, the case that the prosecution is going to try to make. What about the defense? What did they say? The defense attempted to get hate crime charges dismissed today. They said there is no evidence that clearly shows the suspect intentionally targeted LGBTQ people. But the judge ultimately disagreed. The defense showed photos of pill bottles with Aldridge's name on them for medications for nearly a dozen prescriptions for things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and anxiety. And there was also one for Suboxone, which is a medicine used to treat opioid addiction. Aldridge claims to have ingested several illicit drugs the night of the shooting as well. And has he entered a plea? No, um, that won't happen until the end of May. District Attorney Michael Allen said he believes the defense is considering entering an insanity plea, uh, but we won't know that for sure. Uh, But in between now and then, a judge will hold another hearing on whether the public should be able to see all surveillance footage from Club Q. Prosecutors and the defense both agree that some should be withheld. But D.A. Allen says withholding some video will protect both victims and a defendant. Allen said he thinks the trial could wrap up by the end of the year, but maybe not until next year. And just in a few sentences, I wonder if you would tell me more what you saw in court today. I understand a lot of the victim's family members were there. Sure, yeah. Uh, There were a lot of 
uh, more people in a small courtroom uh, than the courtroom could actually hold. Um, and there was also an overflow room set up uh, so that people could watch a video feed. But Aldrich, who was uh, shackled and dressed in orange jail clothes, spent much of yesterday rocking back and forth and crying at the defense table. Uh, but family members and friends of victim that we spoke to yesterday said that they're not buying the attempts to portray Aldrich as mentally ill. And they believe he targeted people at Club Q specifically because they're queer or non-binary. All right. Thank you for your reporting. Uh, thanks for having me. That is Lucretia Wimbley of Colorado Public Radio. For two years now, we've been looking at hunger in America through the eyes of Brooke Neubauer. She founded the Just One Project, now the largest food pantry in the state of Nevada. During the worst of the pandemic in February of 2021, she told us about the spike in demand. We have so many people from different walks of life. There's so much need right now. And six months later, when inflation made the price of everything go up, she told us the impact that was having on her operations. We have to figure out shipping costs. The freight cost is up 100%, so it's, it's crazy. Mm. Now, millions of Americans are about to see a cut to their federal pandemic relief food benefits under SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So we've called Brooke Neubauer in Las Vegas again. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, being able to have this conversation with you guys. Well, before we look ahead to the end of supplemental SNAP benefits, tell us where things stand now, because you've already been dealing with a lot from the high cost of eggs to all kinds of other pressures. You know, just as many Americans have seen a huge increase of their grocery store bill, you could imagine with us, you know, purchasing millions of pounds a year of food, our grocery bill has gone up tremendously. Yeah. And for us, we we purchase in such large quantities, it's it's hitting us pretty hard. What specific changes have you made as a result of that? We were probably the last to stop carrying eggs, um, and we were still providing eggs to our families for for probably about two months, and then they just got so high that we just had to make a decision to invest in you know different types of food because the eggs were nine dollars a carton. Wow. Well, now as pandemic SNAP benefits phase out, people are going to receive about $90 less each month on average. Some households are going to see a cut of $250 a month or more. So what do you expect that to mean for your clients and for you? We will definitely be expecting to see an influx of, of clients that we're speaking with um, that would like to come in and, and be served. And we're welcoming them with open arms. So we are ready to... Um, to meet the demand for sure. Do you have any idea of how many more people are likely to come in when those benefits shrink? Really, time will tell. We, we mm -hmm. will see a big increase, um, but we are expecting to serve 15% more people. So that's what we're preparing for. Do you have the resources to provide for 15% more people or whatever the number might be? What I find is when we are able to share this news with our community partners that you know we are taking this increase on people just want to help support where they can and so we are going to be leaning on our existing community partners to raise their support by 15 percent we just have to come together and keep up with the demand because we just have no choice we can't turn anyone away you know it seems like every time we talk to you you're being hit by some major destabilizing force whether it's inflation or changes in government benefits or the cost of gas or the price of eggs. Do you think your life is ever going to be predictable or is this just the reality? You know, in the nonprofit sector, 
<laughs> nothing is calm. You're always waiting for the next level of support. So, you know, as long as our community is suffering with different needs, we are going to stay on top of making sure that we fulfill those needs as, as much as we can. So, you know, someday would we love to have a quiet, wonderful day at the office? Absolutely. But at the same time, a wonderful day at the office for us is serving 500 people a day and being there for people and removing barriers. Brooke Neubauer is the founder of Nevada's largest food pantry, The Just One Project. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate you. You're listening to All Things Considered. The country's credit rating could be downgraded again if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling this year. Well, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds Americans are split over whether to raise it. They also don't agree on how to reduce the national debt, which now stands north of $30 trillion. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here to talk about the poll. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Uh, it sounds like Americans are just about as divided as Congress over what to do about the debt ceiling. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, there's you know usually two ways to look at how to reduce the national debt, cut programs or services, or raise taxes and fees, or some mix of both. Respondents in the poll were almost evenly divided on which method they were mostly in favor of. And it looks a lot like the political stripes in Congress. Democrats say mostly raise taxes and fees. Republicans say cut spending programs. Um, the problem is something like three quarters of the budget has essentially been off limits because we're talking about entitlement. Social Security, Medicare, and defense spending. And there's just not enough really left over to close the gap in any kind of meaningful way, especially when Republicans are almost entirely against raising taxes on anyone at all, including the wealthy. Um, the poll also asked about the minimum wage, and I gather found broad support for, for raising it. What did you find? Yeah, it's really interesting because this has gone up pretty significantly. And uh, two-thirds now say that they're in favor of raising it to $15 an hour. Almost nine in 10 Democrats and two-thirds of independents want to raise it. It doesn't get done, though. Why? 60% of Republicans are against it. For some context here, you know, the minimum wage hasn't been raised since 2009. And right now it's only $7.25 an hour. That means if you work 40 hours a week for the 52 weeks in a year, you'd only be making $15,000 a year. And the wage gap and income inequality have been huge issues in American society, become huge political ones too. And that's not going to be going away anytime soon. You know, and that's really been driven by younger voters who are showing that they're way more left economically than even younger voters a decade ago. Yeah, lots of strong feelings on that one. One last thing to ask you about, which is um, spending on Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, which so far President Biden has done a lot of, and he's mostly done it unilaterally. Congress needs to uh, step in here at some point. Where do Americans stand on spending on that war? Right. Well, as we know, the president controls the sword and Congress controls the purse, including for new swords. And right now, plenty of arms are needed and have been provided to Ukraine to defend itself without, by the way, American soldiers being involved. The poll finds that a plurality want to continue the funding, and two-thirds say that 
funding has been about right or hasn't been enough support for that. But there is a contentious fight brewing between Democrats and Republicans here. Half of Republicans now say that the U.S. has given too much in aid to Ukraine and the U.S. has given about $24 billion in weapons and support to Ukraine since mm -hmm. the start of the invasion. But this uh, opposition from Republicans has quadrupled in the past year. Uh, while House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's mostly worked behind the scenes to secure funding, we know he's had a really hard time controlling his right flank, and they're the ones who are most against it. So we know this is going to be a big fight to come. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, potential changes to how federal prisoners can request compassionate release, a program for inmates with a terminally, terminal illness or other extraordinary circumstance. And coming up next, the spotlights on the local band Little Fuss. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Boston Pops is out with its schedule for Symphony Hall this spring. The season will open with Broadway stars performing a symphonic version of the musical Ragtime. Other shows will feature the music of jazz greats, including Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, and Duke Ellington. There will be a concert tour of Disney princess songs and John Williams' Star Wars classics. The pop season begins May 12th. Coming to City Space Thursday, March 9th, Julian Shapiro Barnum, host of the web series Recess Therapy, featuring hilarious interviews with kids. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, freezing rain and sleet overnight tonight, down around 27 degrees. Be careful, it's going to be pretty slippery out there. Tomorrow, starting out around freezing, sunshine moving in, but cold winds, afternoon temperatures reaching about 23 degrees. 27 degrees now in Boston at 552. One year ago, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Over the past few hours, I've seen explosions in the sky. I've felt the shaking of the windows. A war of attrition enters its second year. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston indie pop band Little Fuss is a newcomer to the music scene. The group got together at Berklee College of Music and quickly caused a stir. The band has locked in a slot at Boston Calling, the city's biggest music festival, and it was nominated for a Boston Music Award before its first album was even released. I just took a hit of my worst desires, now my eyes are kind of burning. The room's on fire, but I'm playing it cool in the corner like I'm used to. The album by Little Fuss is called Girls at Parties. It looks at the insecurities of young adulthood through a feminist lens. And WBUR's Amelia Mason says its melodies surpass anything you'll hear in the top 40. 
In this latest segment of Sound On, our series on rising local musicians, Amelia says the big fuss over little fuss is well-deserved. The first thing I noticed when I listened to Little Fuss is the voice of singer Olive Martinez. I'm not too comfortable in this space. It's ethereal and very emotive. Guess I'd rather talk over Martinez is the band's primary lyricist. So her perspective as a young woman, and a feminist, is a big part of the band's sound, too. But that sound is shaped just as much by her collaborator, producer-guitarist Cody Von Lemden. The pair met in a freshman program studying abroad at Berkeley's campus in Spain, and they started writing music together right away. Von Lemden is a meticulous producer. His arrangements are really layered, and they sound synth-driven, but actually he's just making very creative use of guitar effects pedals. So he can make guitars sound grimy or computerized or sparkly. And he adds these little flourishes that just take the songs to another level. One of my favorite moments is on the track, She's a Liar. Von Lemden also uses Martinez's voice like it's another instrument. I love how he mixed her harmonies and backing vocals on the song Guardian Angel. The melodies for most of the songs are written by Martinez, and I think she's really gifted. Take the song A Modern Olympia. The hook has a lot of contrast in it. It starts with these long, high notes, which then cascade down kind of propulsively. Martinez has a lot of training in music theory, but she writes very intuitively, by ear. She came up with the melody for a modern Olympia one day while she was in the shower. Little Fuss is no longer a duo. They now have a bassist, Delia Martin, and a drummer, Vitor Oliveira, both Berkeley students like the two original members. Oliveira says he was already a fan of Little Fuss. You know when like your ears just like they catch on something and it kind of feels like home? And it's not necessarily something that you heard before, but it kind of feels familiar. Yeah, it had a little bit of that. I think Oliveira puts it really well. Little Fuss makes music that's very much within the pop music idiom, but still manages to sound original. Cody Von Limden explains it this way. For me, like, I feel a responsibility to make our songs competitive and make them able to be played next to other songs on the radio and not have people bat an eye, but then also infusing that with a sense of songwriting and lyricism that's been lost in a lot of pop music. I don't think you can talk about Little Fuss's new album without also talking about the ideas that tie the songs together. The album's title, Girls at Parties, evokes an image of young women as objects, you know, being looked at, being consumed. But the songs are written from the women's point of view, and this was intentional. Martinez says her idea was you could listen to all the songs and hear the story of one party from the point of view of 10 different women, 
or you could hear it as 10 different parties attended by the same person. Even if it's the same girl going to a bunch of different parties, she can contradict herself and one song be thinking about this thing and then the next song be thinking about a totally different thing. A lot of the songs are about feeling out of place in social situations. I pass a girl who's crying in the bathroom with a friend and another who looks bitter because she's stuck inside her head. A couple left together, but I heard he crashed the car because the girl thinks it was karma and still good only the scar. Feeling alone at a party is an experience plenty of people can relate to. Little Fuss is really committed to making relatable music from a young woman's point of view. You can find Amelia's full write-up on Little Fuss and some great pictures of the band at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Wake up with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow to hear the fascinating history of the League of Women for Community Service, one of the oldest and longest-running organizations in Boston led by black women. Also, how lawsuits are affecting access to abortion pills. Join us again tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover a dynamic career with a master's in clinical mental health counseling. With individualized, experiential learning, you will thrive. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The EPA is trying to determine what the ongoing response to the disastrous train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, will look like. We are going to be with this community throughout this process. They will not have to manage this crisis alone. The EPA's long-term strategy coming up. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Sentencing Commission is considering changing how federal prisoners can request compassionate release, a program essential to inmates with a terminal illness. And in Ukraine, sirens and bomb explosions, just a part of everyday life for a couple who once lived in Swamskut and now reside in Kyiv in the midst of war. The bomb exploded two blocks from our house and all our windows got shattered and they saw smoke. I was doing my exercises on the balcony. That's coming up. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was in East Palestine, Ohio today to meet with cleanup crews and local officials at the site of a chemical disaster caused by a train derailment. Reed Frazier reports Buttigieg stressed the need for tougher rail safety regulations. Buttigieg said it was a mistake for him to wait 10 days before commenting on the derailment. He also said he'd be watching the crash investigation for evidence of whether this accident could have been prevented. I think we need to look at two things. One, did the railroad make the right decisions? That's part of the safety investigation. And then two, uh, should we lay out a little more clearly what those decisions should be so it's not up to them? Buttigieg has laid out a series of proposals to improve rail safety, like higher fines and tougher rail cars, but said the task will be much easier if Congress takes action. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier in East Palestine, Ohio. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll is finding broad support for increasing the minimum wage. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports that's largely being driven by younger Americans. Two-thirds of the more than 1,300 respondents in the survey say they support raising the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour, where it stands now, to $15. And members of the Gen Z and millennial generations are the most likely of any age group to support the increase. Seven in ten are in favor. They're also the most likely in the survey to say they're in favor of raising taxes to close the national debt, 10 points higher than younger Americans a decade ago. So in the coming decades, as they begin to hold positions of power, we could see a very different approach to dealing with economics at the federal level. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The disgraced founder of cryptocurrency exchange FTX is facing additional criminal charges. As we hear from NPR's David Gura, prosecutors now say Sam Bankman-Fried conspired to commit bank fraud. Sam Bankman-Fried, who previously pleaded not guilty to eight criminal charges, including wire fraud and securities fraud, now faces four more. Prosecutors allege he was part of a conspiracy to make unlawful political donations, and now they've offered new details. Bankman-Fried is accused of making over 300 political contributions, totaling tens of millions of dollars, with straw donors. Bankman-Fried was already facing the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison. His spokesman declined a request for comment on the latest charges. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The U.S. economy was growing solidly during the final quarter of last year. That's based on the latest reading from the Commerce Department. Government slightly downgraded its initial estimate, but says it still shows economic growth of 2.7 percent for the October through December period. GDP measures the total output of goods and services within U.S. borders. Stocks rebounded to end the session modestly higher today. The Dow was up 108 points. The Nasdaq rose 83 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The sloppy winter storm is causing slippery conditions that may last through tomorrow morning. Snow, rain, and sleet is falling around much of the Boston area right now. A second batch of wintry weather is forecast for tonight after 8 o'clock. With slushy, wet, and cold conditions out there, the speed limit on the Mass Pike is now 40 miles an hour between Boston and Palmer. An earlier crash involving multiple vehicles on 495 South and Westward has been removed. All lanes have reopened. More than 550 flights at Logan Airport have been canceled or delayed, and some MBTA buses are using snow routes, which bypass certain stops due to road conditions. For the second time in a month, Encore Boston Harbor Casino has accepted illegal bets on a Massachusetts college sports team. 
State law bans betting on in-state college teams unless they're in a tournament. The Gaming Commission's sports wagering director, Bruce Bann, says Encore accepted bets on the B.C. women's basketball team in the past few days. He says the violation appears to have been a software problem in the technology that Encore uses. Bann says the casino is temporarily halting all similar wagering as a result. They are not taking any bets on uh, NCAA women's basketball because it's the only way they can stop that from being offered. So uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what that glitch is. Ban says he expects the casino to upgrade state regulators on the problem in the next week or so. The city of Boston's losing another state representative. Representative Edward Coppinger of West Roxbury is leaving the House next week to take a newly created job at the Massachusetts Biotech Council. He will join the council Wednesday as the first ever head of government affairs. Boston Representative John Santiago is also planning to leave the chamber to become Secretary of Veteran Services in the Healy administration. Santiago still has not submitted his resignation notice. Both seats will be filled by special elections. The state is modifying its plans to completely close the Sumner Tunnel in Boston between May and September of this year. The State Department of Transportation is changing the schedule for Phase 2 of the tunnel's restoration project to reduce the impact on traffic. Instead of closing the Sumner for four months, it will be closed for two months from July 5th through August 31st. That's when there's typically lower volume traffic. The new plan will require an additional closure again next year between July and August. Ongoing weekend closures of the tunnel will continue until this July, except for some holiday weekends. New research from Brigham and Women suggests men who regularly lift heavy objects at work have significantly higher sperm counts. They also test higher for testosterone, according to the study. Sperm count is one factor thought to be a major driver of increasing infertility nationwide. The study suggests a person's chosen line of work could play a role. We're now on the forecast. The slick conditions will continue through the evening as a second batch of icy weather is expected later on tonight. WBUR's meteorologist Daniel Noyce has details. Another quick moving disturbance coming in. Some light freezing rain and sleet from west to east last into the first part of the overnight. So expect renewed icy spots and tough travel, especially north and west of town. But even in the city itself, we'll be hovering right around that 32 degree mark. It'll be above that, though, along the south coast of Cape Cod. Now, tomorrow we dry out. It'll be a blustery feel. Highs in the 30s drop sharply into the teens and 20s tomorrow evening. Wind chill values go sub-zero by Saturday morning, and highs will only be in the 20s Saturday afternoon. Sunday won't be as cold, mid-30s, some sun at times this weekend, but also the threat for a few light snow showers. In the Boston area, 29 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash fact. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Environmental Protection Agency is taking a hard line with the operator of the train that derailed in Ohio. EPA Administrator Michael Regan held a news conference this week where he said Norfolk Southern will pay for the cleanup. And if they don't, he said, EPA will do the job and charge the company triple the cost. Administrator Regan is here to talk about the road ahead for this community. Welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you for having me. Before we get to the company's accountability, I want to talk about the safety of people living in the area. So far, EPA has said tests have not shown any contamination of air or drinking water linked to the derailment, but more tests are being done. 
How much more information do you need before you can conclusively say that this spill does not pose a risk to locals? EPA will continue to test the ambient air quality. Uh, for anyone who has concerns about their indoor air quality, we're asking them to reach out to us and we will come into their homes and test that air quality. The state of Ohio is leading uh, continuous water quality testing. We are providing support in that testing as well. We recognize that people are concerned about their air and water quality, not just now, but for the medium and long term. What does that mean? Months? Years? How long do you intend to keep testing? For as long as it takes. Uh, We are going to be with this community throughout this process. They will not have to manage this crisis alone. Yesterday on the program, we heard from a local hunter in Pennsylvania named Adam Cornwell, who said he has heard about animals dying. Those are reports that we've not independently verified, but he told us this. I don't want to eat the deer if they're breathing in that contaminants, you know, so I pretty much can't hunt here no more. Do you think that's an appropriate concern? You know, we have heard that concern as well. And the state of Ohio uh, is leading that investigation. What the state of Ohio has told us is that they did see an initial impact to some wildlife during the beginning of the disaster, uh, but have not seen any lingering effects from it. And so, yes, there were fish floating in the rivers, but the state of Ohio is investigating that. And I encourage local hunters and everyone who is curious about it or concerned about it to reach out to the state of Ohio to get the latest information. This might sound nitpicky, but there's an important distinction between we've not seen evidence that this is harmful and we have demonstrated that this is safe. I know you said the first. Are you able to say the second? You know, I believe that we are based on the science. Now, I recognize that no matter how much data we collect or provide, it may not be enough to restore that sense of safety and security. But what I can say is with the air quality uh, analysis we've done, and, and we're u- using some of the most you know, high experience technology that we have for both air and water, the data is coming back demonstrating that there are no levels of concern for adverse health impacts. As you said, people don't necessarily believe the federal government. Americans have lost their faith in institutions beyond telling people that you've tested the air and water and found a reason for concern. How can you get folks to have confidence in their infrastructure? How can you get folks to believe you? Number one, we have to continue to show up and we have to be in these communities and we have to be very transparent, bringing the data to them, but also making all of the data easily accessible. I believe that if we make all of our data transparent, uh, those who are skeptical can use third, third parties to verify it. If we are in the community explaining the information, providing them the resources, we believe over time we will be able to rebuild that trust. But we know that that's a long journey. Let's talk about your promise that Norfolk Southern will pay for this. How specifically can EPA enforce that? How do you keep that promise? When bad actors pollute, as Norfolk Southern has done, uh, when they inflict trauma, we have the authorities under our CERPA law to take the actions that we're taking. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hold the company accountable to provide to us a work plan that lays out every single step for how they will clean up the soil, how they will clean up the water, and how they will continue to pay for testing. If they do not do this, we can step in, provide those services to the community with no break in action, 
and we can find this company up to $70,000 a day. By the way, after we complete those tasks, we can go back and go after this company for three times the amount that the government has to come out of pocket for. You know, you referred to Norfolk Southern as a bad actor. You've said this is the mess that they created. Others have described it as an accident. Is it fair to call them a bad actor? Well, you know, what I would say is I won't get out in front of the investigation being led by the Department of Transportation and Pete Buttigieg. Uh, But what I will say is they've had a number of opportunities to demonstrate that they are going to uh, be with this community. But at the first opportunity during a town hall meeting, uh, they decided to not show up. Uh, Listen, they 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 said that was because of safety risks and threats to the well-being of the people who were scheduled to be there. I don't know whether those risks were real, but if people felt that their lives were threatened, you could imagine why they might not show up. Well, you know, there were risks associated and threats associated uh, with our organization as well and others that were in attendance. This was an important event to be at. There was adequate security in the location, uh, and Norfolk Southern should, should have been there and could have been there, just like state, local, federal, community leaders, those who have been impacted. They made the wrong decision. They have to show up, and they have to make amends with this community. They caused this mess. They have to clean it up, and they have to prove to us and to the community uh, that they're genuine in all of the declarations that they've made. Uh, not showing up to public meetings isn't a great way to start. You say that EPA and Norfolk Southern will be there until the job is done. That question of when the job is done is a subjective one. So what does the finish line look like to you? You know, the finish line looks like returning this community back uh, to the state it was before the trauma was inflicted. Uh, The finish line is something that not only will EPA and state and local governments determine, uh, but the communities will be involved in that. Uh, We will clean up this mess uh, together, uh, holding Norfolk Southern accountable uh, to do the work and to pay for it. But this is a longer term process. But rest assured, uh, we will be there until the job is finished. Michael Regan is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, Ari. Washington today, there is a big debate about when people in federal prison should be able to ask for early release. And the U.S. Sentencing Commission is considering what counts as an extraordinary circumstance under the Compassionate Release Program. Advocates want those who have been physically or sexually abused by prison workers to have a way out. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves leads the Sentencing Commission. He opened the meeting with this message. It does not matter if you sit in the halls of Congress or at the desk of a prison library. When you speak to the commission, you will be heard. 
Four years ago, in a law called the First Step Act, Congress gave prisoners the option of asking a judge for early release if they demonstrated extraordinary or compelling reasons, like terminal illness or old age. During the height of the COVID pandemic, 2,000 prisoners a month petitioned the courts for compassionate release, but only a small fraction succeeded. Now the question for the Sentencing Commission is, what counts as extraordinary? Robert Parker is an official at the U.S. Justice Department. As the pandemic showed, we often can't predict what extraordinary and compelling circumstances may arise in the future. Parker says the DOJ supports early release in cases of severe illness or when prisoners have no one else to care for their children. But he adopted a more nuanced view about claims of abuse by prison workers. We agree that compassionate release should be available for certain victims of physical or sexual abuse in prison as long as that misconduct has been independently established so that compassionate release hearings do not become mini trials before an investigation is complete. Yes, we would disagree with that. Kelly Barrett's an assistant federal public defender in Connecticut. One of the driving forces behind the First Step Act was to take um, the administrative delay out of the hands of the Bureau of Prisons, which was extremely slow to act for many, many years. Waiting for an abusive prison officer to be fired or prosecuted could take years, she says. Other defense attorneys and advocates are pressing the sentencing panel to take an even wider view. Defense lawyer Natasha Sen. While the perpetrators of these assaults may be different, the impact on an institutionalized individual can be no less traumatizing or deserving of relief. Kathy Lester is the police chief in Sacramento, California. She says many of the proposals under review are too broad. Instead of granting compassionate release to someone who's been adjudicated guilty based on the evidence by a jury of their peers because they were a victim of sexual or physical abuse, the focus should be on preventing these actions from occurring in the first place. Lester says there's a law already on the books to eliminate prison rape, and if it's enforced, there's no need to expand the reasons for compassionate release. Kelly Sirtis says her brother was carjacked, kidnapped, and shot by a group of men more than 20 years ago. I have now been through three compassionate release motions in the last several years, and going through this process for the families of victims of violent crimes just one single time is too much. She says the panel should consider victim families and show them compassion. The Sentencing Commission says it'll accept public comments on its proposals until March 14th. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, when we first get reports of GDP numbers, they're often not final. A look at how the data get revised and why we don't wait for the accurate figures in the first place. Marketplace starts at 6.30. And coming up next, life in a war zone for a couple who used to live in Swampscott and now call Kiev, Ukraine, home. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. 
There was a late-day rally on Wall Street that led the Dow to close a third of a percent higher, about 110 points. It ended the day at 33,154. S&P rose more than one-half percent to close at 4012. The Nasdaq picked up nearly three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,590. Nine companies are slated to operate online sports betting when mobile wagering on athletic competition begins legal in Massachusetts. Today, the State Gaming Commission approved temporary licenses to the companies that include FanDuel and Boston-based DraftKings. The launch date is March 10th. It's 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org. Follow the news throughout the evening on WBUR. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're heading home or settling in for the night. This is 90.9 WBUR, 28 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Helen Chervitz and Leon Rurikovsky lived in Swampscott, north of Boston, for about 15 years. They raised a child there. They moved to New York for several years and then went to their native country for Leon's investment business. The country is Ukraine. That was more than 10 years ago, and they say they got stuck in Ukraine due to work. Russian troops invaded the country a year ago tomorrow. We introduced you to Helen and Leon not long after the war began. They are still in Kyiv today. Helen and Leon, how are you? We have seen better days, but we are doing all right. Yes, very good, considering. Uh, that's You know, you are such optimists, and I'm really happy to hear that you're doing okay, because at the time we first spoke to you about a year ago, Helen, you said the conditions were livable. Uh, Leon, you said you felt relatively safe, but we know that a lot has transpired in the last year, and Kiev has been targeted by Russians for more bombing. Have you been in the line of any kind of Russian offense? Um, the bomb exploded two blocks from our house, and all our windows got shattered. And they saw a smoke. I was doing my exercises on the balcony, and my neighbor looked up and she said, "Like Helen, do you know what it is?" I, oh, just a bomb. I was thought I was joking, but it was really two blocks, and there's a um, the block where the bomb exploded. All the windows were broken. They are still covered like in wood, like it's a World War Two. That was as close as. Uh, we got to explosions, but actually the other ones were 15 minutes right, 10 minutes right from our apartment building. Yes, and I still, like a year ago, I still feel uh, relatively safe because I think that the probability of the missile getting into our window is extremely low. But are you both hearing the sirens go off? I mean, how do you know? All the time. All, all the time. The time yes. Ceaseless sounds. Like, yes. And actually, where the bomb exploded near my house, there is a park and I was running in that park. That morning I did not go running. And how do you know when it might be a block away? How do you know when you need to run for cover and do you have a place to run to? 
We never did. We never ran for cover. Uh, you never went to bomb yeah. shelter because we'd rather watch Netflix at home than being underground with baby crying and dogs and people crowded. I mean, people were putting tents uh, in the subway. And uh, these uh, sirens, it's just like, for example, a loud music that somebody is playing nearby all the time. It disturbs you. That's that's all. The no, music that yeah, you don't yeah. like. The music that you don't <laughs> like. <laughs> what would be the music you would choose to be listening to when the uh, sirens go off? Rap. <laughs> <laughs> Bossa Nova. I don't know. Have you turned uh, our radio on? Uh, I think Leon reacts more to the sirens than I do. So what is it like on a day-to-day basis to live in a country that is in the midst of a war? I mean, how does that affect you aside from the sirens, aside from the fear? What else are you experiencing? I would not say experience fear, but there are a lot of inconveniences because of blackouts. And usually they're scheduled, but there are a lot of emergency blackouts. And people are forced to put to set their alarm clocks at two in the morning to do laundry, to do some heating, uh, to do some cooking. Because so, that's and, when the power uh, is on. Because right, because uh, most of uh, the households depend on electric appliances and have like uh, electric stove. And those who have gas stove, they uh, host uh, relatives and family or friends, and so they can cook at least for the children. Mm. And when you don't have any power, what happens? We were lucky enough, and we are lucky enough, because Central Ukrainian Radio is in our backyard, so we did not uh, experience blackouts that often. What do we do? We read with the candlelight. We have romantic candlelight dinner. (laughs) Helen, I know you've put your U.S. ties to good use and reached out to synagogues here in the U.S. and in the Boston area for help in getting generators and battery chargers and other equipment that people can use there in Ukraine when they are without power and have no heat. How did you make those requests and how have they been received? I just uh, went on Google and started to contact different synagogues, sending letters with my articles and with a wish list of appliances. And uh, I got some responses, not as many as I hoped I would receive, but still uh, those appliances are coming and they keep coming. And people are so grateful. Some of them are literally crying. And uh, some of them saying they uh, have never thought that such miracle works uh, appliances existed. And as one put it very nicely, that it does not just illuminate my Please, it illuminates my heart. Ah, it illuminates their heart as well. You have a daughter who is still living in the greater Boston area, and I wonder if she has asked you to please come back. Many times. Many times. And actually, my daughter initiated this project because she collected first $3,000 among her friends, and I was placing quarters on Amazon with the money she collected. Mm. And what do you tell her when she says, please come back to the U.S.? You can't leave Lian's business and people. It's a lot of responsibilities. Like Lian business is the major reason because there are employees and their families. So how to abandon the project and people? Uh, Ukrainian employees. 
I know you're both extremely busy, and um, I wonder what you're going to be doing when we hang up from this conversation. We are going to have dinner, believe it or not. Maybe uh, in addition to dinner, I will have a glass of wine. I, actually, what happened um, since the war started, Leon started to cook. So, and Leon Googles and finds uh, recipes. So, I'm doing well. I'm in good good hands. So, I never know what's for dinner. It's always surprising. and it's always delicious. So, my life has changed for the better, actually. (laughs) One of the unexpected byproducts of the situation that you're in that that can be otherwise bleak. Um, It's so nice to talk to you. I'm so happy, as I know our listeners will be, that you're doing well. Thank you, Leon and Helen. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you. Take care. Helen Chervitz and Leon Rurikovsky lived in Swamskit for 15 years, but they've been back in their native Ukraine for more than a decade. They've lived in Kyiv throughout the war that began one year ago. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, snow, freezing rain, and sleet in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, starting out freezing with sunny skies, but Arctic cold moving in, falling to about 23 with bracingly cold winds tomorrow. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Get details at wbur.org slash openmeetings. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is next at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.